So this morning we're coming back to our study of 1 Corinthians. It's been um, a few weeks since we've been here. And so I want to remind you that we're in the middle um, in chapter 14. We're in the middle of chapter 14. We're in the, in the middle of several chapters of instruction that pertains really to um, the assembled worship of the church, what we are doing now when we come together. And so beginning back in chapter 11, where Paul gives specific instruction regarding the Lord's Supper, he says several times in that chapter, in that section, when you come together, when you come together, when you come together. And this concept of togetherness, assembled worship, it continues all the way through this chapter, through chapter 14, and he gives some final instruction right in the very last verse, verse 40, which says, but all things should be done decently and in order. When Christians assemble for worship on the Lord's Day, when we come together on the Sundays, we participate in what is by far the most meaningful and consequential activity that you, um, really, that can be done by the body of Christ. The most meaningful and consequential activity in the body of Christ. So here's a statement that you may have never considered before. Think of this statement. Worship is the highest calling of the believer. Worship is the highest calling of the believer. Pastor John Payne, who is an author with the Banner of Truth, um, he's also a pastor in South Carolina, he says this of worship. He says, it is the center jewel on the crown of Christian discipleship. It is the verdant pasture in which Christ Jesus, the good shepherd, feeds and nourishes his sheep. According to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 5, and Galatians 1, verse 4, worship is the dynamic spiritual context in which the powers of the age to come break forth into this present evil age. He says, indeed, through the means of words, sacraments, and prayer, God is glorified, and his children, through faith, gratefully receive the benefits of redemption in Christ. How should this affect this idea of worship being the, the highest calling of the believer? How should it affect how we worship? The earliest Christians made, they made public, gathered, assembled a priority in their lives. Luke tells us in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, that they, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They devoted themselves. And the definite article in that verse, the, the, the in that verse, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers... That, that definite article there before each of those actions, it indicates that this is, this is something that they did. It was, it was public worship. And so what activities were practiced in the earliest days of the church? The Word of God was proclaimed, taught, the sacraments, and prayer as they gathered together in the fellowship. Further, we understand... Um, that the faithful uh, reading and preaching of God's word are essential to biblical worship. 
I mentioned earlier at the top, Paul uh, writes in his first letter to Timothy, he says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Later, in his second letter, he charges Timothy to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. All pastors, all churches are called to do the same without exception. The bride of Christ hears the voice of her beloved in worship when his living word is read and and preached. So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints, and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And we see this exactly in Paul's description of repentance in our passage today. We'll get there in just a minute. But what's more, the Apostle Peter, in his second letter, he tells us that the Bible is the sure and inspired Word of God that we would do well to pay attention to until Christ returns. Or to use his words, he says, As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. We are to pay attention. We would do well to pay attention to the word of God. And so the question then is this. Are you paying attention? Are you paying attention to the word of God regularly? Are you attending Lord's Day worship with a humble and teachable heart? The Puritan George Swinnick commented that in all the church we may hear the word of Christ, but few hear Christ in the word. I've had people extol the virtues of their pastors, not people here, but people outside of here, extol the virtues of their pastor's storytelling abilities or his sense of humor. People love to talk about how awesome their church's worship band is or the wonderful children's programs and all the decorations and and whatnot. As if those things are important. As if it's important to come to church to be amused or entertained. We're also keenly aware that on our side of the aisle... We see the danger in ourselves of being cold and lifeless, of following tradition for the sake of tradition, because that's the way we've always done it. There's a danger of following, for example, a good expository preacher who can tell those people the truth. You know, that person on the other side of the room who really needed to hear that message this morning, or the other person who really has some repenting to do. What about you? Are you paying attention to the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to use Peter's words again? Again, John Payne said this. He said, nothing glorifies God more than when his dependent children gather together under the public ministry of the word in order to hear, believe, and delight in his glorious attributes, loving promises, and fatherly commands. Moreover, nothing provides greater spiritual blessing for Christ's church. 
We live in a society that is driven by feelings and emotion and not truth. In fact, truth is becoming increasingly subjective and therefore irrelevant. In the last 50 years or so, this has invaded the church. And so worship services have become more and more about consumerism and entertainment and less about glorifying God and finding rest for your souls. Now, I hesitate to share this statistic because um, I don't want you to misunderstand my point. I think, I think you'll get what I'm saying. And honestly, if you know anything about me, you know that I love music, all different kinds of music, um, all different kinds of musical instruments, particularly guitars. Uh, I'm fascinated with the sounds that different players can get out of their guitars. But listen carefully to this statistic. In 2021, last year, a representative of Fender Guitars, the guitar maker, um, he said this, at Fender, we have recognized the importance of praise and worship for quite some time now. Given our mission to support artists at entry le every level and on every stage, we are determined to serve as a major supporter of the worship community. We have learned that nearly a third of all instruments sold are used in the worship setting, and there is no doubt that worship leaders and music directors are a source of musical inspiration for so many players. Contemporary Christian and gospel artists writing and performing worship songs continue to thrive, reaching millions of churchgoers and music lovers around the world. Did you catch the stat? A third, one-third of all guitars, and he's probably talking mostly about electric guitars, that's what they're known for, at least Fender guitars, sold specifically in the year 2020, were for use in a praise and worship setting. These are not cheap guitars, by the way. Now, on the one hand, that's a pretty impressive statistic. A third of all Fender guitars are used in a worship and praise setting. I'm not putting that down at all, but it also says something about the state of the Western church. Now, again, I have nothing against uh, playing the electric guitar, and if it's done well, even in worship, as long as the voices of the congregation are the primary musical instrument. But I am concerned with the church being driven by the music instead of the word, and at the same time, the church being conformed to the image of this world. Now, here's why I'm saying all of this. As we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 20 to 25, we're going to look at today. We see Paul's final argument, his final effort to persuade the Corinthian church to switch their worship emphasis from the fantastic or the fantastical to the ordinary. From the feels of the sign gifts, the emotional high that they would get, to the truth of thus saith the Lord. Now he'll have more to say about their worship through the rest of the chapter, but here in these few verses, he's working hard to change their focus from the things that make them feel spiritual to the truth that brings conviction and repentance. Let's just read these few verses. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 20 to 25 says this Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. 
In the law, it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Let's stop and pray. Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear today. Help us to understand what you are saying to us. I pray that I would decrease and that Christ would increase. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we think about what we might call um, worship wars, especially here in the Corinthian church, the Apostle Paul is reminding them that their abuse of the gift of speaking in tongues is really just another, it's really just another symptom of their underlying problem. They think that they are superior, that they are mature, but they're acting like children. And that's the image that he uses to illustrate his point here in this paragraph. But we need to be careful because he's not saying that only mature Christians are given gifts of grace. He's saying that the mature use them in order, with love in order to build up the church. But for the Corinthians, in order for them to do that, he has to begin with a rebuke. That they must first be rebuked. In fact, in this passage, just this paragraph, Paul gives them a rebuke. He reminds them of a judgment, and he gives an illustration. So a rebuke, a judgment, and an illustration. Beginning with a rebuke. Look again at verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. I immaturity um, is a common problem among Christians. Uh, back in chapter 3, verse 1, he had called the Corinthians infants in Christ. Use that phrase. In chapter 13, verse 11, he uses himself as a, as a similar illustration of the importance of growing up. So chapter 13, verse 11 says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. You probably have heard that verse used in a lot of different contexts before. He's telling them to mature in Christ. But it's not just the Corinthians that struggle with this, right? As Christians, we are responsible to grow out of our immaturity. Consider the sharp rebuke of the preacher of Hebrews. Beginning in chapter 5, verse 11, in trying to teach deep doctrinal truths, he says this, about this we have much to say, these deep doctrinal truths, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. A solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. I love that phrase, powers of discernment. 
We should all be working on our powers of discernment. He says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And he's speaking there really just about the basic tenets of the gospel. But it's not all rebuke. Paul also reminds us, uh, specifically in his letter to the Ephesians, that Christ has given gifts to the church. He's given the gifts of the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers in order to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Rather, uh, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now here in Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20, in this verse, he doesn't really elaborate on what maturity looks like. Not right here. He doesn't elaborate that maturity looks like a healthy church body. It, It looks like a deeper doctrinal understanding, or at least the ability to dive into deeper doctrinal truths. But he is saying that it begins with worship. It begins with worship that is done decently and in order. Worship that is centered on preaching, which brings about conviction and repentance. Just another side note. Um, This is why the pastor of the church is the worship leader. See, we're talking about worship and that he uses the word prophecy, and we'll get into that here in a minute. I'm telling you that it's the same thing as preaching. It's central to the worship service. And so sometimes when we think of worship, we think of singing some songs. That's only a little part of it. I am greatly assisted by those who, greatly assisted by those who come up here and help lead the congregational singing. But that is just a part. And biblically speaking, it's actually a small part of worship. And it falls under the oversight of the elders, particularly the one who is preaching. Because worship is centered on preaching, which ought to bring about conviction and repentance. But as Paul begins this rebuke, if you notice the very first word, he kind of softens it a bit by referring to them as brothers or brethren. This is the assembly of the believers that he is correcting after all. He loves them. He has given his life 18 months he had spent with the church at Corinth. He loves these people. And so he refers to them as his his brothers, as brethren. As a church, we must not be childish in our thinking. We must grow out of our tendency toward self-centeredness in the way that we think when it comes to walking in the doors on a Sunday morning. We must grow out of our impulse to call attention to ourselves, to be enthralled by the showy, 
to the, to the desire, what we must put to, to death the desire when we come in here to be amused and entertained. Yet at the same time, we should have, as Paul is saying here, a childlike innocence when it comes to evil. We should protect ourselves when it comes to the wicked ways of the world. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 23 to 27 puts it like this. Keep your heart with all vigilance. Some of the older versions say, guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech. Put all devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. A childlike innocence is one that has the maturity to guard your heart from evil. Paul tells us in Philippians Chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, really how we do this. He says this, Philippians 4, 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It happens through prayer. It happens through a devotion to prayer. Well, in this case, um, as he's talking to the Corinthians here, Paul is probably, um, he's probably talking about the, uh, guarding against those wicked attitudes that they've developed that have led to the, the divisions and the factions in the church. We see that all through this book. Remember, in this section, he's specifically talking about the use of the gift of speaking in tongues in worship. And he's just told them up in verse 14 that this particular, this particular gift, speaking in tongues particularly, causes their minds to degenerate into fruitlessness. The implication is that the church who is concerned about the, the showy, shallow, unthinking worship will degenerate into a shallow, incoherent waste of time. That's what he's saying. This is the church that is more interested in entertainment than in edification and spiritual um, education. As a way of backing up his main point, Paul appeals to Scripture to point out a judgment. A judgment. Look at verse 21. In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Verse 22, thus tongues are assigned not for believers, but for unbelievers. Now in verse 21, Paul is paraphrasing, probably from memory, Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12. It's not a perfect quote, but it gets at the gist of the verses. He calls it the law, meaning the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. Now pay attention to this, to this point, him bringing this verse up here. This is his crowning argument against the use of uninterpreted tongues, speaking in tongues in corporate worship. This is his crowning argument against the use of speaking in uninterpreted tongues in corporate gathered, assembled worship. Now, in the passage that he is referring to, Isaiah the prophet has has pronounced judgment against Israel. 
And because they refused to listen and to heed what God had spoken to them very clearly through the prophet, he will now send in, it turns out to be the Assyrians, who will issue commands in a foreign, and to the Hebrew-speaking Israelites, a not understandable tongue. They will be forced to comply with the Assyrians under the threat of pain, uh, of, of torture and death. They will be forced to comply to commands that they will not understand. So imagine if a foreign invading army, let's just say the North Koreans, okay? You can make up any foreign invading army. Let's say the North Koreans barge in here with guns drawn, tanks aimed at the building, and they started shouting orders at us in Korean. We would be forced to comply with orders that we did not understand. Or we would probably die, right? That's what's happening here. That's what's going to happen to the Israelites at the hands of the Assyrians. God's judgment for rejecting his prophet's simple, straightforward message will be that the word of the Lord will now come to them as sounds without meaning as alphabet letters spoken in a language of words they cannot understand. And since they cannot understand, it assures their unbelief and it becomes a sign of God's judgment. Think of the Tower of Babel here. Genesis chapter 11, the people pridefully said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord saw this and he intervened to slow down their sinful progress and he said this, come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Now, I'll let you read the rest of that story in Genesis 11. But the point is this. Non-understandable language was a judgment from God. Well, how then, as we put these things together here in the New Testament, how then can speaking in tongues be a spiritual gift? Well, remember what was said in the day of Pentecost? Um, in Acts chapter 2, verse 11, this is when this gift is first given, they've replied, people who heard it replied this, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. God used Israel's rejection of Jesus to open up salvation to the Gentiles. John chapter 1, verses 9, beginning of verse 9 says this, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Paul explains all of this simply in Romans chapter 11, verse 11, when he says this, So I ask, did they, that is the Jews, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So we should see that the gift of speaking in tongues was God's judgment upon those Jews, 
speaking in the New Testament here, that those Jews who have rejected Christ, but at the same time, it was his gracious proclamation of the gospel to Gentiles, or really to all who hear and understand. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So when Paul says that tongues are a sign for unbelievers, he's saying, um, to use the words of my friend Matthew Henry, they were a spiritual gift intended for the conviction and conversion of infidels, that they might be brought into the Christian church. And it's also a judgment given to those without ears to hear. Do you remember the prophet Isaiah's commissioning? when he was set apart to his ministry. In Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, the Lord said to Isaiah, and he said, Go and say this to the people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. What about for believers? After all, the church is by definition made up of believers. Look at the rest of verse 22. So the first part says, Thus tongues are not a sign for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. Now I have said that prophecy in this context is the proclamation of God's word. Here's a definition. I gave you this definition a few weeks ago. Let me give it to you again. Prophecy is the declaration of God's will to the people. It is the declaration of God's will to the people. It is the inspired speech of charismatic or persuasive preachers through whom God's plan of salvation for the world and the community and his will for the life of individual Christians are made known. The prophet knows something of divine mysteries. He knows the word. And as Paul says, preaching is for believers. If I wanted to be a little, I don't know the right word, the British here would say cheeky. If I wanted to be a little cheeky, I might even substitute the word the elect for believers there. It begins with the gospel. Prophecy, preaching is for believers, and it begins with the gospel. Do you know why? Do you know the why, why it begins with the gospel? 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ is where it has to start with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it continues in the in the tradition established by Jesus himself and carried on by the Apostle Paul. At the beginning of our service, Ben read as a call to worship, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Paul tells the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 27, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He preached the word. And to illustrate all of this, 
Paul especially emphasizes the starting point and the key ingredient for all of our assembled worship. Starting point and a key ingredient. So here's an illustration. Look, look at verse 23. He says, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God really is among you. This is why it is so important for us to see and understand that speaking in tongues was connected with judgment. Because if tongues were primarily used for evangelism, which is often what we think, then Paul's illustrations here would be backwards, wouldn't they? They would be contradictory. Can you see that? Again, verse 22, tongues are not a sign for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for Uh, unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? Speaking in tongues drives people away, Paul says. But prophecy, the declaration of God's will for his people, drives unbelievers to conviction and repentance. There are churches that are actively doing what Paul describes in verse 23. There are churches in our area where if you were to pull up their live stream, you would conclude they're nuts. That's what Paul is saying here. Paul's point is just what it says. An unbeliever who witnesses this will conclude that these people have gone absolutely berserk and they'll hit the exit as soon as possible. However, prophecy, preaching, has the potential to penetrate the innermost part of an unbeliever's soul. It presents evidence that causes a sinner to be scrutinized, exposed, and convicted of sin and truth. But remember, this is the work of the Holy Spirit in this spiritual gift. Jesus promised in John chapter 16, verses 7 and 8, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Listen to what one commentary says on this point. What are exposed, that is in preaching, are the secrets that are buried like splinters in the hidden recesses of the heart. And then one hopes no one else will discover. Prophecy lays open these secrets and heals them. Though it might be a painful process, in a society concerned about external appearances, the message, the sermon, the preaching of God's word rips away the camouflage used to hide who one really is. It unmasks secrets, but also reveals the one, capital O, any, the one who loves and accepts them even when they are fully exposed. Worship is the highest calling of the believer because it is here 
that we are called by the Spirit, by the living Word, to fall on our faces in repentance and with convicted hearts of worship declare that God really is among us just as he promised he would be. It is true. Worship is the highest calling of the believer. And if the Holy Spirit is using his word, the word of God, and the preaching of it, the proclamation of it, if he is using these things to pierce your soul, to convict you of sin, then you have a miraculous opportunity to repent to turn from your sin and to turn to the living God for life and peace. Remember Jesus' gospel promise. Remember this all the days of your life. Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When we come together every Lord's Day to worship, and we worship through reading God's Word, we worship through standing and singing God's Word, and the songs that we sing are, are either Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. They're either directed at God or they're directed at each other saying, praise God, right? When we come together and we praise the Lord, when we come together and we worship through our service of one another, through our giving, we worship through the prayers, through the fellowship, the togetherness, the thing that we need to remember the thing that is the most important for us to remember is Jesus' gospel promise. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come together, it would be easy for us to be prideful that we've got it right, that we worship in the right way. Lord, I pray that in those areas where we are sinning, that we would be repentant. Whether it is when we gather together as a church or us individually, that we would approach you with humility that we would approach you as sinners in need of a Savior, that we would approach you as the great sinners who have been forgiven by, a, by an even greater King, an even greater Christ, an even greater Messiah. And so, Lord, we come today. We come to worship, and we don't presume to come to your table trusting in our own righteousness, but in your great mercy. In fact, we know that we are not worthy so much as to gather up crumbs from under your table, but you are merciful and gracious. And so, Lord, as we come together to break bread, 
to eat and drink and proclaim the death of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would, that you would give us what we need, that you would feed us, that you would strengthen us, that you would encourage us, that we would be reminded that Christ died to save the chief of sinners, that he died to save even me. Father, we pray that we would come and that we would eat and drink, that we would sing and pray, that we would listen carefully to your word, that it would be faithfully proclaimed for the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.